If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15. As we've already noted uh, in a couple different ways, today is Palm Sunday, uh, a great Sunday of, of celebration, the day when we commemorate Jesus riding into Jerusalem to the praise of the people there. But as we all know, that praise that Jesus experienced will be short-lived. The crowds and the authorities in just a few days will quickly turn on Him, resulting in His execution on a Roman cross. And so this day... Palm Sunday really sets in motion the events that begin a sobering week in the life of God's people. It's the light before the dark. It's the night before the dawn. The king must die before he can be raised to life. As I already stated, we're going to be together, Lord willing, some of us on Thursday night We're not going to be together Friday night. And so this morning, I wanted to spend a few moments, a few minutes, meditating on what is one of the darkest days in human history, the culmination of an incredible injustice, a historical account that I know that many of us have heard hundreds of times, but I would implore you, even here at the beginning of our time together to guard your heart against letting the familiarity of what you hear, what you're about to hear, rob you of the agony and the horror and the reality of what took place. Because this isn't a fairy tale. This is history. This happened to our Lord and Savior in real time. And as you'll see, there is no sensationalization in, in Mark's account as we might find in modern day writings. But that doesn't make it any less real or any less powerful. Now, just like last week, we're, we're kind of jumping in this week in the middle of an account. We, we don't know or remember maybe what has come before. And so I want to just take a moment to, to set the stage before I read our text for this morning. After years of teaching and healing throughout the region, Jesus of Nazareth His enemies have finally caught up with him. You see, the Jews have found reason to arrest him, to interrogate him, and now they have handed him over to the Roman authorities in hopes that the Roman authorities will silence him. That's what they want. And Pilate, the the Roman governor at that time, is actually personally pretty impressed with Jesus. He's amazed at Jesus, but like most politicians, at the end of the day, he's a crowd pleaser. He'll bow to the mob and he'll give them what they want. And so that's where we find ourselves as we jump into this middle of this gospel account that Mark gives us. Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 16, reading through the end of uh, verse 32. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. 
And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ... The King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As many of you know, I, I like music. I like to listen to music. I like to play music. I listen to all sorts of music. My musical tastes are pretty all over the place. Years back, 1996 to be exact, uh, the singer Alanis Morissette released a song uh, that created a bit of a linguistic uproar and dispute in our culture. I don't know if any of you remember this. The song was the song, Ironic. It was a song where in her lyrics she talks about all these situations that she undergoes, tragic situations. The problem was that they weren't situations that actually described irony, at least not to the English teachers in our midst. And I know we've got a couple here. What is irony? Well, the Oxford English Dictionary says this, a state of affairs that seems deliberately contrary to what was or might be expected. Irony is a literary tool. Some irony is funny. Some irony is not. But the use of irony is helpful for bringing about clarity to a situation. I bring all of this up, the word irony, because here in this passage that I've just read, it's a passage full of ironies. Or to say it another way, many of those who witness the historical reality of what happened here to Jesus of Nazareth had no idea what they were actually seeing. But we do. And the way Mark presents it to us is helpful in order to bring focus, in order to bring clarity 
to what is really going on. And so for the next few minutes, I want to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus, not in terms of the horrible physical death that our Savior endured, but in terms of the realities that were happening that weren't necessarily evident to everyone there. And I do this in order that we might look back at the cross of Christ and marvel and worship and give thanks. And so four ironies from this passage I just read that I hope will lead us to adoration. And the first one is this. The one who is mocked as king is the king of all. The one who is mocked here as king is king of all. You see, our story begins with a a disturbing scene. Back in chapter 14, we didn't read it, but Jesus stood before the Jewish authorities. He frustrated them so much that they just unleashed their anger upon him. They spit him. They hit him in the face. And then in chapter 15, just before he's delivered to be crucified, he is scourged. And this was normal procedure in that day and age for one condemned to die. The scourging Jesus received was a brutal beating with a leather whip entwined with bone and and metal. And and so brutal, in fact, was this scourging pre-cross that often the scourging itself did the execution. Even before a criminal could get to the cross. But what we find in our text is not normal. That other stuff is normal. This is not normal. This is a bunch of soldiers fueled by their disgust for the Jews playing sport with a Jew who is condemned to die. So they take our Savior and they dress Him in a mock robe. They, they grab a thorny branch and they fashion it into a crown and they, and they crush it down on Jesus' head and they, and they slap His weakened frame around and they bow to Him and they salute Him as they would Caesar and they say in jest, Hail, King of the Jews! Not knowing that in their mocking, they are actually stating reality. He is the King of the Jews. And He came to be their King as well. You see, Mark records this off-the-beaten-path scene for us and then brings up the issue of kingship two more times in this passage. First, in verse 26, as the charge against Jesus was placed on a sign above His head, the King of the Jews. Now, it was not out of the ordinary for the condemned to wear or to display some explanation of why they were being executed. That was meant, intentionally so, by the Jewish authorities to deter future crimes. On top of that, Pilate likely because of his continued disdain for the Jews, he insisted that it state this fact. He wanted it to state the king of the Jews. Mark doesn't record this, but John records that the Jewish leaders actually protested the sign. They didn't want it to say the king of the Jews. They wanted it to add the phrase, this man said he was the king of the Jews. But here in this account, here in this instant, Pilate insists No, King of the Jews. 
And then again in verse 32, Mark draws attention, our attention to kingship as a mocker cries out, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. By this time, Jesus had been paraded through the city streets. Nails had been plunged into his hands and his feet. And now he was hanging there in weakness, in exhaustion, in silence before all to see. This man, this man hanging there is a king. Mark says, yes. Mark readers knew it. Most of us in this room know it, but the mockers here, they didn't see it. And of course, in one sense, how could you blame them for not seeing it? I mean, this isn't the way kingship should look. It's not a way a king rules. Where's your strength, Jesus? We like power. We like displays of strength and shock and awe. And here's the silent one in weakness, hanging before us. Hail the King of the Jews. He is the King of the Jews. He is the King of all. And in three days from this scene, He will prove Himself to be the King with no rival, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the One who demands that every knee bow. And so why hang there, Jesus? (laughs) Why not show it? Why not turn the mockery on its head right now? Well, simply put, it's because the king is hanging for his subjects. If he makes the show of power that that we think He should show or that we want Him to show, if He insists on receiving the glory that we know this man is due, then we all will be humiliated. Even worse, we all will be doomed. But if He stays there, if He allows Himself to be humiliated and shamed, we will receive the glory that we don't deserve. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of undeserved grace. This is the Gospel. Embrace it. Remember it. Rejoice in it. Jesus is turning the world on its head and He is reigning in His weakness. Weakness that is actually strength. And that's the second irony in this passage that we just read. The one hanging in weakness is displaying the greatest strength. The one who is hanging in weakness is displaying the greatest strength. I mean, no doubt in in this passage, the physical weakness of the man Jesus is evident for all to see. I mean, we can just think back to what he's already experienced. He's been up for hours. He's been beaten severely. And he's undoubtedly received no to little nourishment. And then the implication of verse 21 is that Jesus was too weak to carry the crossbeam that the condemned traditionally carried and paraded throughout the city streets. And so this Simon from Serene is recruited on the spot to carry this for Jesus who is too weak to do it himself. 
And there's no doubt that the title, the King of the Jews, and all of the strength that that brings to mind, and here the weakness of this man that they witnessed before them, that only fueled the mocking of those whose hearts were hard. But what we can't miss this morning is that Jesus' greatness is displayed in this weakness. You see, here's the question. Which is easier for Jesus, the Son of God, to call down from on high with just a word of his mouth, a heavenly host so numerous that they make the sun disappear to deal with what's going on, to deal with this injustice, to deal with his enemies, and to remove him from the cross? Is that harder, or is it harder for him to remain there? With his tendons burning, with his thirst parched, with his breath increasingly getting shorter amidst the mocks and the jeers of all who look on his half-naked body. And that's not even considering the fact that he knows that the Father is about to turn his back on him and forsake him because he carries the weight of the sin of the world which is easier you see Jesus here in this apparent sign of weakness is actually showing the world his greatest strength praise God he's showing his resolve to follow through in obedience and love for the father the father's plan to save a people for himself How thankful we are that in that garden when he agonized with the will of the Father that he said, not my will be done, but your will be done. You see, far from failure, brothers and sisters, Jesus is accomplishing something incredible for you and for I. And that leads us to the third irony. The one who failed to destroy the temple is actually allowing the temple to be destroyed. We find this in the mocking of verse 29. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at it with me. The crowd says, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You see, the implication in that mocking is that Jesus had failed. That His claim to destroy the temple had not come to pass. And here He was, hanging on a cross with no hope, His life expiring. And of course, we know well the significance of the temple in the life of God's people. We've talked about it from numerous different angles as we've studied God's Word here at Ascension. The temple was the place of God's presence. It was the place of forgiveness. It was the place of washing away of guilt. The place where sacrifices were brought to the altar. And so you can imagine that the Jews were protective about anyone who said that they were going to do anything to it. And in fact, back in... Chapter 14, verses 58, this is one of the charges that they made against Jesus was this threat of Jesus against the temple. Well, here he is on the cross, and it seems like it's just another man making another empty threat. We need not be worried. Let's just mock him. You who would destroy the temple... (laughs) 
But there's more here. You see, first of all, Jesus never actually said that he would destroy the temple. That was a twisting of his words. What Jesus said is that they were going to destroy the temple. Not him. What he said is that he would raise it up in three days. Which confused them all the more. But here's the irony. It's happening. It's happening. Because as we all know, or as many of us know, Jesus wasn't speaking of the physical temple. He was talking about himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and all that it represents, the place of sacrifice, the place of forgiveness, the place of God's presence. It's all found in Jesus, the great high priest who has made all other priests obsolete, the lamb of sacrifice being killed on behalf of the sins of the world once and for all. And so do you see the irony as they speak of the temple still standing, hanging before them in the person of Jesus, the temple is being destroyed. The presence of God that they long for, the forgiveness that they desire, is found in that man who they mock. Not in the physical place that they defend. They totally miss it. Oh, but we're here this morning and we see it. We see it and we wonder. And we stand in awe. And the fact of the matter is these people will see it as well. They'll see it as the sky grows dark, as the temple curtain is ripped in two, signifying that a new order has come. They'll see it when Jesus rises from the dead in three days and creates a stir like had never been created before. The temple rebuilt just as he said. Well, there's one final irony that I want us to meditate on, and it's this. The one unable to save himself is the Savior of all. The one unable to save himself, that's what they said, is the Savior of all. This is the culmination of everything that I've said to this point. It's so ironic that they mock him for being unable to save himself in verse 31 while he is carving the way of salvation for them. I mean, they couldn't deny that this man had made the blind see. He made the lame walk. He made the sick well. He spoke with an authority that they had never seen before. He even brought Lazarus back to life. But here, in the darkness of their hearts, they hate Him. And they think He is helpless. But Jesus is far from helpless. He is far from weak. He is accomplishing something here on the cross that only He could accomplish. He is bearing our sins. And the Father is orchestrating this event and the irony intertwined for you and for me. Oh, brothers and sisters, see and savor the irony of the cross and let it move you to wonder. 
Let it move you to gratitude. Well, the last thing I want to say on, the, is this, on this passage is verse 21. We read this, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Isn't it interesting that they mention all these guys' names, this father with his two sons who had come into the city? Why not just mention that it was a stranger, some guy was asked to carry the cross? Why mention his sons? Well, I think Mark does this because these first century readers who would read this account, who maybe weren't there that day, they knew these men. Even years later, Alexander and Rufus, these young boys, now grown men, they knew those men. They know these men because these men had been forever transformed by what they saw that day. By the participation that they had. You know, we don't hear much of these men. Just one small mention of Rufus at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. But it's kind of amazing to think about these boys growing up telling this tale, telling this story of this man on the cross. There was a song years ago, going back to music, full circle. There was a song years ago that came out, I think when I was in high school. And it created this scenario of these boys. Kind of an interesting thought. That they came into Jerusalem, as many did, traveling from surrounding towns to sacrifice. And they came with their sacrifice, a lamb. They had brought from their home, from their farm, and they were going to submit it. And as this song tells the story, as the lyrics tell the story, the dad is watching all of this take place. The dad is scooped into the drama of the scene, asked to carry the cross. The boys are standing by. The dad carries the cross, comes back to his boys, and the boys confess to the dad, we've made a mistake. The lamb that we brought ran away. He's gone. In all the hustle bustle, he got away, dad. We don't have a lamb. And what does the father say to the sons? He points to the man who is hanging on the cross that he just carried. And he says, watch the lamb. That's the sacrifice for us. Brothers and sisters, as we begin a, a holy week in a world that is anything but holy, the cross of Christ is folly to the world. It's foolishness. It's stupid. But to you and I who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. And so as you begin this week of reflection on the cross of Christ, on the Savior, don't miss its irony. Don't miss what was really going on. And remember that resurrection is coming. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account and for the reminder of the work that our Savior accomplished on behalf of his people. Father, as a familiar story settles into our hearts at the beginning of this week, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. Oh, Father, may we watch the Lamb, the One given for us, and in doing so, may we be transformed. May we recognize that in a world of aimlessness, that there is one worthy of building our lives upon and placing our hope entirely in. And that person is Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, the one who was raised to life for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would accomplish what indeed you hope to accomplish this day in the lives of your people through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.